Well, we come to another portion of Scripture that you might read through these chapters and go, all right, detail upon detail. (laughs) All about this building of the temple. Why all these details? Why all this information? Um, And we're going to look at these, and I, I enjoy finding things that have record with extraordinary detail with no discernible purpose. So you can look and see there's actually great things that God uh, was showing through through these passages. In particular, uh, we know that all Scripture is ultimately speaking of Christ. And in these chapters, we're going to see uh, at least two major pictures of what is being foreshadowed in regards to Christ, of how God is going to be with his people and what that response then of the people is to be for God. In in chapter 5 of 1 first, first Kings, we're going to be in 1 Kings 5 uh, through chapter 8, and because we are taking on four chapters, we are not going to read all four chapters, because that would just about take up my time that's given to me. So we're going to kind of pop in along the way and look at some of the big pictures and the details that are all, uh, given that are of importance to us. Uh, for the purpose of this lesson. In chapter 5, as you could scan your eyes down that, you just start seeing preparations being made by Solomon to begin this uh, temple building. And what is of note right out of the, the gate in the very first verse is that we are tapping into the king of Tyre. And we are going to have him provide uh, the, the vast amount of supplies for the building of the temple. And so not only are you seeing Gentiles participating in the preparation of the temple, when you get to chapter 7, you're going to see that they're even included uh, in the building process, which is fascinating for a temple that is uh, to the people of Israel, and Israel being an exclusive community, that you are already seeing a picture of the inclusive nature of the Gentiles. That will come to light even more in chapter 8 that we will look at tonight. But just as we begin to see, even for the preparations of the building and even for the the constructing of, of this temple, you are seeing that Gentiles are participants of it. In particular, and why this would be so important, is what you see in verse 7 of chapter 5, where after this message is given to uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, about needing supplies to build this temple, his response in verse 7 is that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And I just hope that you would get a feel of this very important foreshadowing of how this temple is causing Gentiles to praise the son of David, but more importantly, to praise the Lord. And that here is here I'm going, praise be to the Lord that God has given David such a wise son to go about building this temple. And so you're already getting these inklings of Gentile inclusion. You are getting inklings of the great purpose of God is that all the nations would be blessed and that Gentiles would praise God through Israel and ultimately through this temple. Now, as we go through these chapters, I'm going to be feeding you puzzle pieces 
And I'm not going to give you the box lid until the very end. So just you just start holding these pieces in place. And then we'll see chapter by chapter as it builds. And in chapter 8, it puts all these pieces together for us. So here we have this Gentile inclusion. In, in chapter 6, Solomon begins to build the, the temple. And in particular, what is important about the beginnings of the building of the temple is that there is a promise that is made. And as you look at chapter 6, you would be very tempted to start skipping over the details of here's here's the temple and here's uh, its dimensions and here's all these details. And you kind of go, okay, okay, okay. But I want you to zero in in particular for us in, in verse 11 where it says now the word of the Lord came to Solomon verse 12 concerning this house that you are building if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David your father And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. There is a very important covenantal promise. Let's take the back part of that promise first. In verse 13, it says that God is going to live with his people and never forsake them. Huge promise is being made right here by God to Solomon, where God is saying in regards to this temple, I'm going to live with my people. I'm going to stay with them, abide with them. And in the process of doing so, I'm never going to leave them. And then after giving that promise, there's also in this A very strange stipulation. Now you might suppose that with verse 13 saying that God is going to dwell with his people and he's never going to forsake them. If I were to take a poll of what would you suppose the covenant stipulations are in verse 12? You might say that that the people of Israel must always walk with God. And if they will stay with God, then God will not forsake them and dwell with them. But I want you to notice something interesting. If you look at verse 12... The promise is this, that if the king will obey the laws, if the king will walk in the ways of God, then God will live among his people and he will never forsake them. This is an interesting shift, an interesting promise that is being given. And so this is what is told now to Solomon. If the son of David will just simply obey, just as his father told him to do. If you remember how first Kings started, like in chapter 2, where David tells his son, keep God's laws, follow his ways, don't veer from that path. And God is confirming that promise to Solomon and saying, if you will obey the Lord, then And I will live among this people and I will never leave them and I will never forsake them. Huge covenantal promise that is being given here in chapter six. And after that promise, you can scan your eyes through the rest of chapter six and you'll begin to just read the amazing riches of what this temple was, the the vast wealth that is in this temple construction uh, is absolutely staggering. It is beautiful and it is rich. Like in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 6, it tells us that 
there were cedars that were lining the walls so that not a single stone could be seen. And so you'd imagine the import from Hiram, all of these cedar trees covering over all of the stonework so that you won't see a single stone. You look at verses 20 through 22, where it just simply says, everything in this temple then is overlaid with gold. A staggering declaration. There is gold everywhere. You not only don't see the stones as the cedars cover over it, but there is gold everywhere you look. And then perhaps most importantly is then describing in that inner sanctuary verses 23 through 28 where we see the presence of God as the cherubim is pictured there as the protectors and the guardians of the presence of God. And even the cherubim are overlaid with gold. We're told at the end of the chapter that it took seven years to build this temple. And after all of that expense... In building the temple, it's overlaid with gold. We've got cedars and all of that. Chapter 7 goes into the building of Solomon's palace. And I think it is interesting to see that we are told there no expense is spared even in building his palace. You know, you might suppose that after building this super expensive temple, we're kind of tapped out and we're not going to be able to build Solomon's quite a, a, a vast or wealthy palace. Yet chapter 7 just starts all the way through verse 12, describing the riches of his house. It's filled with cedars from floor to ceiling. Huge costly stones are used in its construction, taking 13 years to complete this vast palace that has been prepared for Solomon. And then the final part of chapter 7, if that were not enough, let's start talking about how expensive everything is in the temple. And so the rest of chapter 7 says, you know what, in all the expenses of building the temple and building Solomon's palace, let's talk about all the articles that are placed inside of the temple and the richness and the wealth of the kingdom that is being described. If you notice in chapter 7 and verse 47, Something shocking is pretty much said there. Chapter 7, verse 47. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. We have so much bronze. We just don't even bother weighing it or measuring it anymore. It's as insignificant uh, as plain metal anymore in our language. That's that's just bronze. We just want to, you know, all right, we'll just use that. It is amazing the picture of the vastness of the wealth. We won't measure the bronze and then verses 48 to 50, the rest of that chapter is, guess what? Everything in the temple, it's got gold too. (laughs) So we have just gold upon gold upon gold. This temple is amazing in its opulence. It is amazing in its riches as it's just gold all over the place on the inside with the articles and even the articles that were not inside the temple but used in the temple courts were all of bronze and there's so much bronze we don't even care about how much it was because we have so much bronze laying around. That brings us then to what becomes the the focal point of why we're talking about the temple is because in chapter 8 now we have this dedication of the temple 
At the beginning of chapter 8, you'll notice that the Ark of the Covenant is brought in and is placed into the temple and sacrifices are being made. Staggering statement made in chapter 8 and verse 5, where we're told there that King Solomon and the congregation of Israel who assembled before him were with him before the Ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. The, the wealth of Solomon's kingdom is incalculable at this point. It's gold everywhere, bronze that we can't even begin to weigh, nor will we bother because we have so much of it. And we can't even count the animals that we're sacrificing on this dedication day because there's so many of them. I mean, how many animals do you have to sacrifice before you stop counting? I mean, you've got to be thousands, right? I mean, you you can count for a while. And then, no, this is so many that we can't even count how much is being offered. After the offerings are being made, another important picture is given in verse 10, is that as soon as the priests come out of the holy place from placing the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And the only time you've ever seen that was back in Exodus, at the very end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle is completed, the glory of the Lord fills the the tabernacle to such a degree that none of the priests are able to perform their uh, works of service for God while that is happening. And the same thing happens here in chapter 8, verse 11. The priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the, uh, the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God's presence then is in this temple. God is with his people. And now he tells them why this is so important. You'll notice in verse 20 that Solomon stands up with all of Israel gathered at this temple dedication. The glory of the Lord has filled the temple. And in verse 20 of chapter 8, Solomon says, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember that very important promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, that it would be uh, his son who will build a house for God. David desired to build a house for God. And so God says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. And yes, your son will in the process build me a house. And now Solomon says that has come about, that God has been faithful and he has kept his his promises. But why is that so important? Why does this temple matter? Why do we need four chapters of details about the temple? Why is this important and significant? And I'm glad you're wondering that because Solomon wants to answer that for the people of Israel. I suppose they thought similarly, well, what is the big takeaway? What should we understand from the fact that God has filled this temple and he has kept his promises? I want you to notice the, the, what's, what's given here as Solomon begins to explain the importance of the temple. And I want you to see that he begins by explaining the temple in terms of what it's not. Verse 26, Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken by your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven And the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
how much less this house that I have built. I want you to see that Solomon at this temple dedication, everything is done. The the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And now Solomon is making his speech and he says, God has fulfilled his promise. He's kept his covenant with us. And the first thing that I want you to know is that God is not in that temple. I can't build a temple that will hold God. He says, nothing on earth can hold God. The highest of the heavens cannot hold the glory of God. Do not look at the temple and say, well, God is in this little box that is filled with gold. And there he sits over there in the corner. God will not fit in there. He is too grand. He is too majestic. He is too mighty. And so I want you to see, even Solomon had an understanding of this, that he wants to make sure nobody would ever look at the temple and think, well, God is in that place. And it's unfortunate that it seems that Israel kind of went down that track. But right out of the gate, Solomon says, God is greater than the highest heavens. So why the temple then? If God is not actually there, but it's simply representing his presence. Why is this so important? Verse 28. Yet I have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and to your people Israel. When they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. So Solomon says, it's not because God's in the temple. That's not what's important. Rather, what he wants them to understand is that this is going to be the place where God is going to hear his people. This is going to be this point of contact by which Solomon says, Lord, what I want you to do, I know that you are not in this place, but when we come to this place and we pray to you that God, you would hear our prayer and that you would forgive. And if you have that central idea in mind, all the rest of chapter eight is about that. All of the rest of what Solomon says after this statement is all about that. For example, in verses 33 and 34, he'll go on to say, if we go out to battle and we're defeated in war, which remember, if Israel gets defeated in war, what does that mean? You know, we've, we've tracked with Israel long enough, like in the days of Joshua to, or judges to know when you're being oppressed and overthrown, you've sinned against God. And so if we lose in battle and Lord, we turn back to you and are repentant and we pray toward the temple, then God, and please notice not who is in the temple, but God who is in heaven, hear our prayer and forgive us. And he just keeps going on and on of that. Verses 35 and 36. If there's a drought on the people because of their sins. We see that with Israel. If there's a famine or a drought, that was significant. 
That meant they had sinned. And so he says to them, if we come into a drought and then the people turn back and they're repentant and they pray toward the temple, then God who is in heaven, hear our prayer and please forgive. But look at verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Even, Lord, if a foreigner, someone who is not an Israelite, hears about the Lord, the Yahweh of all the earth, and now prays toward this temple, Lord, you hear their prayer too and answer it. Even the Gentiles are included in this temple imagery that they could pray toward the temple and have God in heaven hear their prayer. In verses 46 through 52, really interesting, because in verse 46, he starts describing if we if you are angry with us such that you send an enemy and we're carried off into captivity. (laughs) This is very much like how Moses at the end of his final days spoke of how we're all going to sin and be carried away. And Solomon's doing the same thing. If we so sin that, Lord, you send an enemy against us and take us away into captivity. But if while we are there, we turn back to you and are repentant, then, Lord, hear our prayer as we pray toward that temple and forgive us and restore us. And one of the reasons I think that's important is you might remember, I put on the screen there in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is told by the authorities not to pray to his God. And it says that he opened his window toward Jerusalem as he always did and prayed toward Jerusalem. Why is he praying toward Jerusalem? Because God said, if you're in captivity and you pray toward the temple, then you'll have forgiveness and healing. And that seems to be what Daniel is praying is that Daniel is praying, God, you said that if we would turn our hearts and be repentant and pray towards your temple, then you God in heaven would hear that prayer and that you would forgive us and that you would restore us. And so the pictures that are being given here are absolutely stunning and it is giving us something that I think is is very important in the imagery of what God is intending that Solomon understands. Don't look at the temple as if God is there. I think it's so important that throughout chapter 8 it keeps saying God who is in heaven Hear our prayer. We pray toward the temple and God, it's not that you're there, but you're in heaven, but you will then answer us there. And the point to see is that God is not in that temple, but the temple is where the people come to meet God. No, God's not living there, but this is the point of access. This is the point of contact. If you want to come in contact with God, then you need to go to that temple. And throughout chapter 8, what you've seen is the picture that that's where the repentant people were to turn. If you are repentant, 
turn to the temple. If you were looking for forgiveness of sins, then you need to turn to the temple. If you want your prayers to be answered, then you would turn to the temple. That the outsiders could even come and have their prayers answered. If they would turn to the temple, you should see the temple then acting as this mediator between God and the people. So I hope you feel the weight of when the temple is destroyed in 586 BC, what that meant. There's no point of contact to God anymore. There's no place for forgiveness of sins. And there's no way to think that God is going to bless his people or answer prayers or allow people to come back to him. The destruction of the temple is God turning his back on the people and saying, you are going to be off in your sins. And this fits so much of what we've been doing on Wednesday night of what the prophets were promising of restoration that needed to come. Because look at what was lost when the temple's destroyed. This is the picture that's given is the temple is important because it acts as this mediator between God and his people. Now, if that's not cool enough, let's go forward. And see why this matters so much in regards to Jesus. Two important pictures that I want us to see. Number one, as as we read in chapter 6, we saw a covenantal promise. And the covenantal promise is this. That God would be with his people if there was a king who would walk in the ways of God. That's the promise that he makes to Solomon. Solomon, if you will walk in my ways and keep my statutes, I will live with these people and I will never forsake them. How'd Solomon do? Didn't do it. We're just a chapter away from watching that failure. But why is that recorded for us? Because it's trying to show us something. It's trying to show us the importance of needing a king who will keep all of God's commands. This is the hope of Israel. If Israel could only have a king who will walk in righteousness and follow in the ways of God and never turn aside from God's laws, then God made a promise that he would never forsake his people and that he would always live with them. And you see why Jesus had to come. He's the king that we needed. He comes in the flesh as the son of David and does all that God said so that God can be with us and never forsake us. Now, the reason why that is extremely significant and why this should be our hope is because it's easy for us to look at our lives and just go, man, I'm just blowing it. I'm, I'm, I'm failing. I'm not doing what God wants and I'm trying to do what's right, but I just don't know. But the covenant is if we have a king who will be steadfast and walk with God, that he will be there for us. And we can come to him and he will be there and not forsake us. That's our hope. If our hope is in us obeying all God's laws and doing all that God says so that he will live with us and never forsake us, how are we doing? We got problems. We have big, big problems. 
We need a king who will do all that God says so that he can live with his people. And that's the image that's given to us. That is our hope. Our hope is not in our own righteousness. That is an utter failure. Our hope is that we have Jesus as a king who lived in righteousness, perfectly kept the law, and therefore now God is able to be with us and never forsake us because Jesus fulfilled the covenant requirements not us it's a huge picture that is being given here in first kings is trying to set up israel to understand if you could just have a king who would be righteous and follow god's ways god would never leave you and not a single king could do it and so god answers the problem and solves our condition and sends his son to be king so that he could be with us. Our hope then is in the fact that we have Jesus as king who did what no one else could do. And number two, as you talk about the temple, it becomes extremely important that Jesus starts walking around and saying, I'm the temple. It becomes significant when Jesus comes into the scene And he says words like this, John 2, verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show that you're doing these things? You know, who do you think you are? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he had raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What I want us to see is that every word that Solomon said in that temple dedication about the temple and what God would do in regards to that temple is absolutely fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the place where God meets his people. Jesus is that place of mediation. He is where the repentant are to turn. He is where sins are forgiven. He is where prayers are answered. Everything that is described in 1 Kings 8 is all foreshadowing what Jesus will ultimately accomplish. He will be the place where people come in contact with God. He will be the access point. He will be where prayers are answered. He will be where sins are forgiven. He will be the place where the repentant are to turn. In fact, he will be the place that the outsiders are supposed to come to be able to have access to God. This is all foreshadowing what ultimately Christ was going to be for us. In fact, when you think about these words, like this is the place where prayers are answered. I want you to see here it is way back in the Old Testament. This imagery of praying to God toward the temple. You ever asked Why do we always pray in Jesus' name? Because Jesus is the access point. Because you only can talk to God through Christ. Because you need a temple to pray toward. And God who is in heaven will hear your prayer and answer based on that. And here that's already being symbolized 
in this very text. I think it's so important then when you come into the New Testament and you see Jesus talking about what had happened by the Jewish leaders in regards to that physical temple that you might remember he said this was supposed to be a house of prayer. Well, where would he get that idea? (laughs) Well, the whole dedication is that the temple was supposed to be the place where people would come and pray toward that temple so that God would hear. And how devastating it must have been for Jesus to see is rather than that being the place of prayer, it's the place of making money. It's the place of ripping people off who were trying to come to God and offer their sacrifices and have that access to God and have their prayers heard. This is why Jesus is throwing over the tables. You have turned this very place that was supposed to be a, a place of beauty to come to God as a place of just making money, calling it a, really a den of thieves is ultimately what they had done with that. It was supposed to be the place where the world was supposed to come into contact with God. Now, if I could keep you for 40 more minutes, I won't, I know, but side sermon right over here for you to run with. I'll just do it for three minutes instead of the 30 or 40 it deserves. You know, the New Testament also says you're the temple. First and first Corinthians three talks about it as the local church. We are supposed to be a temple of the living God so that people come into contact with the Lord through us. And then three, ver- three chapters later says you got to get away from sexual immorality and sins because don't you know you're the temple of the living God. You're supposed to be drawing people to God. You're their access point. You're supposed to be the place where people come in contact with the Lord. That's who you are. That's your purpose. That's the imagery that's given of how we are a kingdom of priests. What are we doing? We are bringing the world to the Lord through us so that they can see the glory of God and that they can have their sins forgiven as they come in contact with him. That'd be a fun another sermon, wouldn't it? Not tonight. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this imagery. Amazing, amazing pictures of who Jesus is to us as our temple. And Lord, we thank you for providing Jesus for us. And we thank you for what that means to us. Thank you for your son through whom we can offer this prayer that we can find forgiveness of sins and that we can access you. And thank you for his perfect life so that we can enjoy the covenant blessing that you will never leave us or forsake us and that you belong to your people and that that would be our our only hope. Lord, thank you so much for what we have through your son We pray that what we see your son doing for us would cause us to be repentant, cause us to be the houses of prayer that you want us to be as we live our lives for you. 
And Lord, we pray that in our individual lives, we would live in such a way that would reflect your glory and draw the world to you. And that here is this congregation that we would do likewise, that we could be a light at this dark time. And that we would be instruments to help people see your glory and access your grace and mercy. Lord, forgive us for when we have not lived up to this purpose, when we have not lived up to our calling. And we pray for strength to live as glorious temples who serve you and shine as lights in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we'll use this song then to sing as an invitation. If there's anything that we can do for you in your walk with God, we certainly want to give you that chance to follow him with all of your heart, to live your life with this great purpose of serving him as a temple to the living God. Anything we can do for you, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?